and go to Luke chapter 22 and verse 24. Luke 22 and, and, and verse 24. So uh, follow along with me as I read. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on the thrones judging 12 tribes of Israel. So our passage today finds uh, Jesus and his disciples just literally hours away from his uh, passion and crucifixion. It's the same night. Um, having shared together the, the, the Lord's Supper uh, in the upper room where Jesus had told them about his forthcoming death, forthcoming death, and had actually inaugurated a new covenant, the new covenant in his blood, also, during this time, Jesus stooped down to wash their dirty feet. And he had also declared during this time that one of them, one of the twelve, would betray him. It was a gathering that was rich with eternal significance and somber contemplation. And now, right after that time, presumably someplace between the upper room and where they were headed to the Garden of Gethsemane, an argument breaks out amongst the disciples. And the argument is about, above, I mean, of all things, which one of them is the greatest? So Jesus sees us this moment to teach about greatness. And I think we need to understand, too, that there are, there are at least four separate times that Jesus addressed this topic with the disciples because sometimes it was a discussion, sometimes it erupted into an argument, but they were always about who's the greatest. And so Jesus seizes this opportunity to, uh, to teach them about greatness in the kingdom. Two contrasting kinds of greatness. Worldly greatness and kingdom greatness. Well, you might be saying, well, if that's a topic, I'm out because I really don't have an issue with being great and all of that. And even if I did, I wouldn't talk about it. <laughs> but it's interesting that all four times that this comes up in Scripture, and it might be more than that, there's at least four, Jesus addresses all the disciples about it. And we know that they had personalities that ranged from thither to yon. Personality types and like that. But yet somehow we get the clear idea that they were all engaged in this. So I think it's safe to say that they, that we like they, all desire to be great, to be recognized, and to be significant and to matter. Now, this is really easily illustrated. 
Um, years ago, I, I, I coached a Pop Warner football team with uh, junior high boys about this age like this. And so day one, gathering one, all of that, everybody comes together like that. And I said, okay, we need to uh, you know, get some positions here. Who wants to be in the, in the line and block? You know, the, the guy with the number and no name and nobody knows who he is and he's blocking for the guy that's carrying the ball. And I said, okay, who wants to be lineman? Right, who wants to be quarterback? 23 hands. <laughs> Everybody wants to be the ball packer. Everybody wants the, the press. Everybody wants the recognition. But it doesn't stop with little kids. Men you know, are, 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 are the same way. They strive to set themselves apart, one above the other in many ways. Sometimes it's with strength. Sometimes it's by their careers or their income. And if you don't, I mean, you see this in, throughout the whole spectrum of life, really. Have you ever sat and listened to two fishermen? <laughs> about how big and how many, and I know how to catch them. I know where they are better than you do. But the same thing's true of the way that we project ourselves over others in much more serious topics. And women, you don't escape this either. In unguarded moments, women can be heard dissing on one another or another woman because of the clothes that she wears or doesn't, uh, the makeup she wears or the way her hair is or the way she talks or something like that. And, and, and even when, when, when we're not verbalizing it, we're thinking it. My, my grandmother used to say years ago, she said, you know, Every mother crow thinks her little crow is the blackest. <laughs> Always setting apart. And, and, and the way that we do that, it, we all desire greatness and to be regarded in a significant manner. But, but having said that, I realize that there are some of us who have been so trampled down by others' desires for greatness that we've just given up on even the thought of greatness. But it's not because you don't desire greatness, it's just that you've given up hope of ever achieving it and so become bitter sometimes and dismissive of others. This is a very powerful thing. And James, James kind of, the, the, the book of James, which I think is just kind of really, just kind of spiritual hardball, right? James puts it very clearly like this. He says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But I want us to notice in this passage, first, that Jesus does not re rebuke their desire for greatness, but only their worldly understanding of it and how they're going about obtaining it. Jesus doesn't reprove them. He doesn't rebuke them for seeking it. Why is that? Because God designed man, you and me, for greatness. Adam was made, as you all know, in the image of God. That's pretty great. Right? I mean, you know, when you think about 
angels and archangels and hosts of angels and all the things that we see that they do in Revelation and throughout the Bible. And so like, you know, one angel slew 186,000, I think it was Assyrians in one night. They're not made in the image of God. But man is. Man was not only created in the image of God to be great, he was also put in charge of all of God's stuff as the vice regent of creation to manage, to have dominion over, to, to multiply and fill and to rule God's creation. That's pretty great. So Jesus didn't rebuke them for desiring greatness. But Adam, in his quest to be like God, which he already was, by the way, Adam, in his quest to be like God, and his desire for, great, for greatness was corrupted. And that's what we see here in Jesus' description of the kings of the Gentiles. Look here, it says that they lord it over. Right? They lord it over. And they exercise authority over. And then they call themselves benefactors. You know, kind of self-congratulatory talk, right? You ever noticed, just parenthetically here for a minute, how politicians will fleece the taxpayers, you know, to raise money to build buildings that they name after themselves? (laughs) Or bridges or whatever. Thinking about Maxwell Bridge, but okay. Jesus is not rebuking their pursuit for greatness, but the kind of greatness they're pursuing and the model kingdom that they have in mind, which is worldly. You know, Jesus even goes as far as to tell them and us how to go about becoming great in this passage. So as we go through this passage today, we should keep in mind that our King Jesus does not want to keep greatness from us but wants us to pursue the greatness for which we were created. And he does this by being first our example. Our example. Jesus, in in contrast to Gentile kings and their lording it over and exercising authority over the subject, Jesus uses himself as an example. He says, but I am among you as the one who serves. I am among you. Not over, like the kings, but among you. Was he over them? Well, certainly he was. But he says, I'm among you as the one who serves. And I think at this point we need to remember that God has one true servant. This was identified by the uh, prophet Isaiah. And as I, Isaiah 42, he says, 700 years before the time of Christ, He said, behold, my servant, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. When Jesus said, I am among you, that's a statement of identity. I am. You know, we 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 talk about the seven I am's in the Bible. You know, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the way and the truth and the life. And we say, man, those are signature statements. The language here is exactly the same. I am among you as the one who serves. 
Jesus is the servant. He came not to be served, but to serve. That's his nature. You know, earlier that night, Jesus had stooped down as a slave to wash their feet. This was not a show or a performance of what Jesus could do. It was a demonstration of his heart, who he is. He is a servant. And I wonder how many of us see the lowly service of Jesus as just a thin veneer, just to make a point. That really, as king, his real desire is to be served. Do we understand and believe that the deepest pleasure and desire of our king is to serve his people and meet their needs. How is greatness manifested in humble service? I mean, we just have an automatic disconnect of that in our minds. I want to give you a kingdom principle about greatness. And it's this. True greatness increases as it descends in humility. Worldly greatness, on the other hand, increases as it ascends in pride and being served. But true greatness, the lower it goes, the greater it is. Jesus himself, right, descended into the lowest parts and became the servant of all. Wherefore, Philippians 2, it says that God highly exalted him. That is how and that is why the first can be la- the, the, the last shall be first and the least shall be the greatest. That is who he is. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am gentle and lowly. That's who he is. And that's what he calls us to be. And that's what he enables us to be. And he promises, if you go on with that verse, take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for I am gentle and meek. He says, for you will find rest for your soul. Rest from clawing our way up the world's deceptive promises of greatness that crumble underneath us faster than we can mount them. For us to seek kingdom greatness, we must understand and believe that our king is a servant. That's his heart. That's who he is. His humble service is not an act to make a point, but it flows from who he is, and so it must be with us. Jesus is not just our example. Jesus is not just what we should be and says, okay, well, you know, be like me, because God tried that in the Old Testament, right? Here's ten rules. Keep them. But Jesus is not just our example. He's our enabler. Jesus said, the greatest of you must become like a child. And the leader must become like a servant. Greatness begins by becoming, not doing. Becoming like Christ means dying to our sinful natures. Because our sinful natures pursue our own kingdoms by our own means. They can't be trained. 
They can't be redirected. They can't be reinvented. They must die. So that the life of Christ, who is the one true servant of God, might live through us. Paul, who knew this well, said in 2 Corinthians 4, he he remarked about in in his ministry, he says, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, get this, so that the life of Christ also may be manifested in our body. And again in Galatians 2.20, he said, I am crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's only one way that we can become anything but what we are. And that's through the life of Christ in us by transformation. Jesus is calling us to become like him and Jesus enables this transformation by the new birth, by moving us into but but by moving into us so that we become like him. The new birth accomplished by Jesus is an amazing privilege that sets us apart for his kingdom, greatness. Listen to this. You know, Jesus really only during his earthly ministry spoke of the greatness of one man, John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist attracted a lot of attention. The people thought he was great. They even asked if he was the Christ. They wanted to elevate him. They wanted to celebrate him as a prophet. But he deferred. He took the low position. He confessed his unworthiness even to untie the thong of the coming Savior's sandal. He rejected the celebrity offered him and humbly proclaimed his unworthiness. And this is what Jesus said about John. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of of heaven is greater than he. We should let that sink in. That should blow our hair back. That's you and me, Jesus is talking about. How could we possibly be greater than John? Like John, we're born of a woman, but we have been born again from above and so indwelt by the Spirit of Jesus himself. Whereas John could prophesy and describe the greatness of the the Savior, by Jesus' life in us, we can live out that greatness in humble service to God and the world and so share in his greatness. And all that comes with it. Jesus is not only our example and our uh, enabler. He's also the one who ensures the blessings of the kingdom to us. The rewards of true greatness are secured for us. Because Jesus goes from I am to describing his disciples in a very peculiar way. He says, you are those, which is also an identity statement. You are those who stood by me in my trials. Verse 28. This is an astounding statement. It's it's ironic and it's extremely gracious. 
It's ironic because Jesus is actually rewarding or promising them reward and commending them for standing by him in trials when in less than 12 hours, they were all going to abandon him. But he's talking about the fact that they had stood with him. Well, how could the disciples stand with Jesus in his trials? And why would they stand with Jesus in his trials whenever they did? The answer is because they were chosen by Jesus himself. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. John 17, 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me, and I guarded them. So the answer is that Jesus chose them, that Jesus kept them, and Jesus was guarding them. So Jesus is actually commending them and, and, and preparing to reward them for something that he himself gave them. And the same thing's true with us. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that you've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That's me and you. He's with us. He's keeping us. Jesus said, I'm with you always. And no one will snatch them out of my hand in John 10. Jesus is promising rewards for the very thing he himself enables them to do. You see, God calls us to do things that we cannot do, supplies the grace for us to do them, and forgiveness when we fail, as as the disciples were soon to do, and then rewards us for the things that he gives us. That's incredible. That's wonderful and so encouraging. And this should also give us a clue to the verses that lie ahead. We're almost done. That our kingdom status is secured and guaranteed by our gracious king himself. What's our confidence that that kingdom blessing will be ours? Is it our performance? Our faithfulness? How do we know it's ours? Jesus answered this in verse 29. He says, just as my father granted me, I grant to you. Just as my father willed to me or covenanted to me or decreed to me, I grant to you. So we have to ask ourselves, when and on what basis did the Father grant the kingdom to Jesus? Psalm 2.6. The answer is, in eternity past, in the counsel of God, God granted his son, the Father granted his son the kingdom. It says this in Psalm 2.6, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. The kingdom was granted to Jesus in eternity by divine decree as an inheritance. And so also, our guarantee of kingdom blessings comes not by our works or our faithfulness, but by eternal degree, his inheritance from our great God. It's ours by relationship to Jesus. How blessed we are. 
We're to have this attitude, it says in Philippians 2, that was in Christ Jesus. It says, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality a, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant. Have this attitude in yourself. That's where greatness begins. What kind of attitude did Jesus have? I mean, because equality with God to a bondservant, how does that happen? It says he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, why did Jesus not grasp onto his equality with God? Because Jesus understood that he does not have to grasp and strive for that which is already his. That understanding of what was his and could never be taken away freed him to serve as a bondservant. When we understand that the kingdom and its benefits have been given to us by covenant between the Godhead in eternity past, irrevocably, we're set free from self-promotion, self-pursuit, in fact, free from the tyranny of self altogether to realize the greatness for which we were redeemed. And that kingdom does not come to us grudgingly by a king who has some kind of obligation he really doesn't want to fulfill in, in bestowing a kingdom on unworthy recipients. Now, listen to this from Luke 12. Don't be afraid, Jesus said. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly, chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. We don't receive the kingdom from the reluctant hand of an obligated king, no. It comes from a loving father who gladly made the choice to give it to us. It was his idea. It's his choice. He is glad about giving it to us. This is a verse not merely about what God will do or has to do, but what he delights in doing for you and me and what gives him pleasure. This kindness, this grace of a loving father should astound us and melt our hearts at the same time. A man walked into a nice restaurant and quickly noticed a very busy young man cheerfully serving his customers, first welcoming and seating them, taking their orders, bringing them their food, cleaning their tables, and even checking the restrooms. This guy was visibly more committed to serving than his fellow workers. And after watching this while he was eating his meal and finishing his meal at the checkout, the man who observed this said to the young man, your commitment to serving is remarkable. You seem to be willing to do anything for anybody at any time. What's in it for you? Do you hope to own this place someday? The young man smiled and shook his head and said, no. Then why, the customer asked, do you serve so energetically and cheerfully? The young man smiled again and said, the reason I do not hope to own this restaurant someday is because I already do. <laughs> you see, my father recently died and left it to me in his will. And all that remains is for the estate to be settled and it'll be mine. My father loved people and served people because he loved them. That was the example I saw and the heart that I inherited from him. 
my service is not so I can obtain this restaurant, but because it's already mine. Because in Jesus, we are now inheritors by eternal covenant. It's all ours. It always has been. In Matthew 25, 34, Jesus again addressing these same group of guys said, come now, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's ours, all of it. It always has been. If that's not you, if you've not repented of your sin and fully trusted in the saving work of Jesus Christ, you're not included in any of this. But the invitation is open. If you're not fully trusting in the saving work of Christ, you are stuck in your own little condemned kingdom of one. And I urge you instead to join we who are blessed of our Father by faith in Christ. To be freed from the tyranny of self. To serve others because we already have it all. The eternal covenant of God and the work of Jesus secures it all. We were designed for true greatness in Adam. But in Adam, that desire for greatness was corrupted and distorted. But by our Lord Jesus Christ, by his example, by his enabling life in us, and an inheritance that's sealed in eternity past, we're guaranteed of the restoration of that greatness and all that comes with it. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled as we see what you have done, what you have accomplished for us. Lord, the example that you set the implanting, Lord, of your life in us and the secure deposit we have of the kingdom because we know you. Father, because of these things, help us to go about relieved of the task of clawing, of, 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 of trying to... Um, advance ourselves over others and put others underneath ourselves. Lord, have us dis disabuse us entirely, Lord, of this worldly system. Help us to understand that we already have it all. And there's nothing for us to clamor for, to strive for, other than being like you. So help us, Lord, to remember this day by day, in the world that we live in, and so to shine out, Lord, as lights in a dark place for the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.